This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. I am one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and everybody who listens to this show knows that my friend from the north, Dan Gunther, is always with me. Dan, how's it going, man? Hey, Matthew. Going great. Uh, glad to be here again. Uh, it's gotten cold up here. I'm, I'm going to be the wussy Canadian that, that says... Wow, it's it's not warm, and I'm not happy. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's funny you mention that, because honestly, it rained for like three days straight here, and it was chilly, and, you know, I've been running, and I just sucked it up and ran in the rain and the cold. Uh, it was so nice that it was not raining today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got we got a dump of snow on the weekend, and uh, it kind of looks like it's here to stay, so, you know. November finally looks like November, but I'm still going to complain about it. <laughs> yeah, we've had so much snow on the mountain uh, at Mount Hood that uh, they're opening a few lifts oh, uh, this weekend for, for some snowboarding and skiing for people. So I need to get up there because I, I totally miss that. But you guys are not here to listen to us talk about winter sports uh, and our lives. We're here to talk about some Star Trek news and... Um, well, we did have some news that we were going to talk about from Dayton, but, you know, since he's on the show with Kevin tonight, I don't know, Dan, maybe we should just let him tell us uh, after the interview? Yeah, I think I think that works. You know, it just works out really well that he's here today and, and we've got this exciting new news about stuff coming from him in 2016. So, uh, yeah, let's let's let him talk about that later in the show. Well, luckily, we had two comics drop this week, and Dan and I both read them, and we're both raring to talk about them, because let's just be honest, go get these comics. <laughs> so good. But we're going to start with uh, Star Trek Ongoing number 51, and we are continuing in the Mirror Universe, Dan, and of course, Star Trek 50 was the awesome double-sized issue that landed us in that Mirror Universe. I, I uh, The quality of this comic is astoundingly good like i am just i am personally loving every single page this uh really was a standout issue i mean i you know looking through this i'm finding so little to complain about and so much to you know really gush about here uh i'm loving the story i'm loving you know and i think we both agreed we talked about this on the other side of the page the artwork in this comic is just astounding 
Oh yeah, totally. Is I mean, uh, can we can, can we just talk about Luscious Locked Con? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, his 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 wavy locks blowing in the wind. I mean, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch has never looked so good. Uh, <laughs> women everywhere are going to want this comic. Men everywhere are going to want this comic. It's it's he. I mean, it, you know, people love Benedict Cumberbatch these days, but and the way that they're using the con character here because of obviously the mere universe so he's different he's not evil i just i love it i really really love it mm-hmm. yeah no uh we kind of uh last week didn't mention his involvement in in the story because we wanted to preserve that uh this week you know we see uh him and his people playing a big role in this story and uh you know, let, let's talk a bit about the story, too. Like, you know, they're taking this original idea of the mirror universe and, you know, but really using it in a really cool and unique way. I mean, we're, we're we visited the mirror universe many times. But we haven't seen a story quite like this. This is just really excellent work here. Well, what I love is that, you know, we're familiar with the mirror universe from TOS and in Deep Space Nine and obviously all the other novels that we've had that have had mere universe stuff in them but this is it feels the same and yet you know it's it's not quite the same and they're really putting their own jj verse spin on it and i'm really liking it you know uh even just the way that they use the planet vulcan in this mere universe and what's happened to it which is Oh, I'm not going to say, because I think you need to go out and get this comic and figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, all of these things and the way that the characters are interacting and everything here is leading up to something that I can't wait to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in, in the last issue, which is going to be the conclusion. So they've given us all this great setup. I'm really wishing that this was just a, a double issue to wrap this up and just explosive, you know, mere universe style. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, this story really does deserve uh, a really strong finish. And uh, based on what we've gotten here, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful and, and you know, pretty confident that we're we're going to get a pretty great story once this is all done. I, 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 I completely agree. Um, I, I'm so excited about the next ongoing issue and i i honestly i don't know if i've been this excited about a storyline they've done in a while but this one has me is it is it the next release week for for ongoing is it the next (laughs) you know i i I really want to know so i i hope that people will get this and enjoy it and tell us what they think on on the babel conference or shoot us a quick email over at trek.fm slash contact so uh, another fantastic issue with uh, Star Trek Green Lantern number five. Uh, this is uh, number five of six, and so that means that we only have one more. What did you think about the penultimate issue here for this massive crossover? Well, this was uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, you know, in a lot of the same ways that when we talked about the TNG Doctor Who crossover, I feel like as we're coming into the final half here, it's it's really turning much more into a Green Lantern story than a Star Trek story, uh, which is, you know, really good. It's kind of giving equal weight to both sides of the equation here. Um, 
you know, of of the two stories this week, I think I enjoyed the ongoing just a little bit more. And that's mostly because probably my unfamiliarity with Green Lantern and stuff. But, uh, you know, what I see here is is really exciting. Um, some great, uh, I almost want to say visual effects, but it's not really visual effects. It's It's just great artwork as this kind of cosmic battle rages between... Uh, the various forces that that control the different rings here uh very very visually exciting i i was you know the artwork in here just kind of leaps off the page with the kind of dynamic looks and colors and and stuff here so i was i was really enjoying this story me you know me too it really is what i love about this crossover kind of like the doctor who crossover that we did is that it it's a big story, you know, and it's it's involving a lot of different elements. And you know, the Doctor Who crossover had the the Borg element, so that makes it massive, you know, when when you talk about the threat. And this one makes it even bigger than the Borg almost because you've got Klingons and Gorn and Romulans. Oh my! <laughs> uh, just everybody involved here, along with this terrible evil that has come from the other universe over to our side that now we can talk about, but it's brought Vulcan back mm. <laughs> from the dead and Vulcans back from the dead as like an undead army. So, and we're just left with that hanging. Like you're basically fighting death itself. Mm -hmm. So if anybody can beat them, it should be Kirk, right? I mean, he's he's pretty good at cheating death. Yeah, absolutely. Patting himself on the back for it. <laughs> yeah, if there's a... If you know, if there's a no-win scenario here, this looks to be it. So, you know, Kirk's your man, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, these both of these issues are, are really fantastic. So I do hope people will go out and, and, and get them and enjoy them because, uh, honestly, I'm very pleased with what's happening. And, and you know, we've got the new... Uh, Starfleet Academy coming down the line soon, which is very exciting as well. So IDW has really almost, I feel like, upped their game in, <laughs> in what they're doing. And that's, uh, for everyone who's a huge fan of Star Trek and enjoys comics, that's just a huge plus. So um, I'm I'm really excited to have been talking about these. And I'm also, got to say, great work, IDW, getting us some things that we can be so excited about. So You're here. Well, Dan, before we uh, jump into the, the feature, uh, do you want to tell everybody uh, some things about the show and where they can find us? Yeah, Matthew, uh, we always want to hear from our listeners, and there are lots of different ways you can get in contact with us. On our website, uh, trek.fm, go to trek.fm slash contact. We've got a contact form there. You can get in touch with, with, with us there. Uh, leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. Uh, we're on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Now we also have, of course, the Babel Conference on Facebook. Uh, just go on Facebook, type the Babel Conference into the search field, uh, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Now unique to our show, uh, literary treks we have our goodreads group uh, on goodreads.com we've got our own little group there where we have all the bookshelves with all the books we've previously read as well as what we're reading so you can get caught up and and be prepared for our upcoming shows 
And also there are, of course, great conversations happening about all the books and comics we read here on the show. Well, and of course, we want to remind everyone that Literary Treks is part of the Trek FM family of podcasts. You can find all of our podcasts at iTunes.com slash Trek FM, as well as online at Trek.fm. Well, Dan, I am always so excited when we get to have the authors on to talk about their latest book. And, and it's so much fun because, you know, when we get to the other Seekers book, the one that's not by David Mack, it means that we get to have Ward and Dilmore on at the same time. And I got to say, if the other side of the page is any you know, note on how tonight's <laughs> going to be, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, we're definitely really excited to have uh, both of these guys on here today. So uh, welcome, both of you. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> See, we already screwed it up. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, it was well, kind of my bad. <laughs> so I do want to ask you guys, you know, the first two books – were very much in concert with each other, you know, and then now that, um, you know, the first story ha has been taken care of between uh, the Endeavor and the Sagittarius, uh, you and, and, and Mac have, have kind of gone separate ways and allowed the ships to, to do their own thing. So I, I wanted to ask y'all, coming into this book, where did kind of the idea come for, for you guys and where you wanted to take uh, the Endeavor? me <laughs> um we're, see now we're all waiting um when we originally pitched the idea to pocketbook simon and schuster and ultimately getting permission from cbs we had come up with a number of different story prompts um you know i mean this was this was something that they were rolling the dice on they felt they were very excited that we were interested in continuing something in the vein of Vanguard, but we also were very clear with them that this was not going to be another kind of Vanguard. It was, it was going to be a different kind of storytelling. And, and so when we did that, we said, and for example, almost like a, uh, a TV series Bible, I mean, uh, in coming weeks, you'll see the crews, you know, do this, do this, do this. And so we had three or four different story ideas um, already planned out. And when they asked us to do book four, then we just sat down and picked out the one we thought was most appealing. That's that's such a cool thing. You know, the think of how you guys just sit down and come up with and popcorn ideas. So what was it, Dayton, that made you both choose this one and think, OK, this is what we want to go with. Uh, this is the, the story idea that's really grabbing us the most at the moment. Well, I mean, I think it was. I think we had between the three of us half a dozen or eight different springboards, and they were written in such a way that they could have gone to either ship and crew. It was like, you know, the Sagittarius encounters big blob in space or Endeavor encounters derelict spacecraft. Or, I mean, I'm being real surface here. I mean, the, 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 the prompts we provided in the Bible were probably just a couple of sentences long, and it was just meant to say these are the kinds of stories we're thinking about. When we got the go-ahead for Seekers 4 and knowing it was going to be a standalone story, we went back to the Bible and we looked at the storyboards and we had something very similar to what ended up being uh, for at least, you know, a very, very, very high level. But I mean, we obviously had to flesh it out tremendously from those couple of sentences and we ended up twisting a few things and introducing a couple of things that weren't originally in that idea until we got something we were happy with. 
Mm-hmm. I think the story that and, and uh, step on me if I'm if I'm wrong. The initial thing we had talked about um, stemmed from a. I mean, I'm, uh, Dayton lives in Missouri. I live in Kansas, but work in Missouri. And uh, one of the things that generally gets on our radars for newswise and otherwise are the activities of the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. And one of the things that we had thought about was what if the what if a, a federation crew operating under the prime directive had run across a group of people who were wanting to do something that on one hand would run against what we all understand as the prime directive but might actually be something that would fulfill scriptural prophecy for the people involved in the actions. I mean, do you, I mean, you know, on, on one hand it's, Hey, you guys shouldn't be doing this. But on the other hand, it's, well, what if they are fulfilling something that is, you know, the, you know, dictated by a power that is beyond our understanding. And that was something that we thought, well, this is kind of an interesting deal to explore. But then as we started to wrap our head around it, it felt like it was getting farther away from Star Trek and into something that just didn't quite feel right. So at least that's what I, that's, that's kind of the way I remember the conversation. And so consequently, it led us to some of the story ideas that ended up in Seekers 4, which is, um, you know, what if, you know, the crew gets co-opted into doing the bidding of an, of an alien race. And it's not like they're working against their will because as far as the, as far as the co-opted crew members are concerned, they're totally on board with it. They, they, they you know, hell yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do this. And so that's, that's kind of where we went. Well, and that was a really interesting thing because the way that you have this new spin on, on an old idea with the parasites was, was really kind of a cool thing there i i kind of started to think of them as a benevolent malevolence like they're they're not they're not really evil they don't they mean that they're not looking for world domination they're looking for survival but the way that they go about everything is puts their their subjects basically in a a type of slavery yeah And, and so it's benevolent but it's also got this maleficence yep. with it, and and I that is a I don't and 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 it made me really think about the world that we live in and how something can look good on the outside, but once you dig down a little bit deeper, it could be just terrible trouble. Yeah. Well, I mean, and uh, I mean, the way I kind of look at that is, uh, you know, more of a Star Wars joke than anything. It's, you know, I mean, if you're reading the Rebel newsletter, the destruction of the Death Star is, a, is, 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 you know, a tick in the box for freedom. You know, you're reading the, you know, you're reading the Empire's newsletter and, uh, and they're terrorists. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so what's, I mean, so, I mean, you know, everything, uh, you know, spin, you know, what makes a good guy a good guy? What makes a bad guy a bad guy? And were these guys really bad guys? Well, I really love that that ambiguity there because, you know, by the end of the novel, I found myself, you know, there's there's still these people that are willing to go along with them. And I'm wondering, like, are they actually willing to go along with them or have they been manipulated enough to think that they want to? And uh, 
yeah, I was I was really wondering about that ambiguity. Like, you know, was that ambiguity intentional or, uh, you know, which, which way are we supposed to <laughs> cheer for on that one? Because I was left really not sure there. <laughs> Maybe it was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah. mean, that was our approach the whole time was that we we, we, we wanted to portray the Lorandi as they're not evil. This is just the only way they have to survive. They have, they rely on, on bipedal or more pedal, you know, whatever, multi-pedal, whatever you want to call them, life forms to do anything. They have no capability of, of doing any kind of physical labor by themselves. They're totally slug worthless. I mean, they're, they're, they're basically Congress. Okay. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the well, idea you got a is point. this for them. It's a survival situation, but the way they go about it is is they make it. It's almost like on some level, we have to do it this way. We don't have to make it unpleasant for the other party, and, and it's still a form of slavery. Don't get me wrong, but they <laughs> but they at least try to make it nice. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we try to make it comfortable. It's like yeah. It's, it is still slavery. I mean, you know, the person doesn't get to decide whether they got collected or not. You know, they didn't mm -hmm. have a choice in the matter. But so it's like, okay, I collected you, but now here's a biscuit. You know, <laughs> and where I'm being flippant. That's the idea: is that it's not hardcore evil, but it's not necessarily a great gig. You know, it almost feels more insidious in some ways. It almost does, and and I'm not, and that's not unintentional. Mm -hmm. So no, that's you know, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we were not. We were not uh, um, we we were not unaware of the idea. But this is a little bit of a uh, spin on uh, on on Jet Via Dax. You know, I mean, you know, their whole idea of the symbiont was uh, it's a great honor to carry one of these slugs around in your stomach, and uh, you know, and it transforms the personality of 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 you know the uh, uh, of the carrier. You know. Um, and, uh, and, and so we had these ideas of, well, Curzon is a different person from Jetsia, and Jetsia is a, a different person from uh, uh, the next one. <laughs> just went blank. <laughs> Desri. On, uh, Desri, thank you. I went blank on Nikki's name. Um, but, uh, you know, so there was this kind of idea that, uh, um, you know, we, we just we thought, well, there's, there's two sides to the coin, and, and this is another side. It's funny because I actually brought up in my review about the trill and how <laughs> this novel actually made me question the trill. And I was like, oh, maybe they're not as willing as we think they are. Well, no, I don't know. they enter into that they enter into that union though with their eyes open. They're mm, prepared absolutely. for it, they for it, they they have to test for it, they have to be rendered physiologically and psychologically capable of doing it. So there's this whole vetting process that goes into a host. So our idea was we take a little bit of the trill aspect. We take a little bit of the conspiracy parasite aspect. There's probably a little bit of not quite the Borg, but in that ballpark. And then even a little bit of Landru and, and you know, of the body and all that other stuff. I mean, there's, there's little bits of things that we pull from for inspiration and kind of mash it all together to come up with something different. <laughs> there's nothing like having a specter octopus on the back of your neck Basically, telling you what yes, to do. It is. It's like, it's, it's like, a, <laughs> like a fanny pack that won't go home. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take it off. Yeah, it's a fanny pack. It's a fanny pack, and the belt buckle is stuck. You can't get it off. So, <laughs> well, one another thing that I really appreciated uh, about this book was um, 
I noticed there are a few times you used some characters from other other uh, works. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, really nice surprise was seeing uh, Christine Rideout, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. No, you got it. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, uh, you know, one surprise was seeing Christine Rideout from That Which Div- what, That Which Divides, which was a really cool little. Oh yeah, I remember her. That's pretty cool. And uh, the one that really struck me, though, was uh, the future Dr. Trop from the TNG relaunch. Uh, I was what, like, is, is this the earliest we've seen his character? I don't remember seeing him anywhere else besides TNG. Yeah, I think this was the, this was the earliest one. And, and just uh, um, for, for what it's worth, um, that, that name, um, and you know, you can pronounce it however you want to pronounce it, but, uh, but that name is picked up from, um, from a physician that was my very first physician. In fact, this was the, the guy who delivered me, um, Gideon Trope. And, um, and he was my, he was, you know, the pediatrician that treated me until I was five and moved away. But my mom greatly admired Dr. Trope. I have dim but good memories of him and that's where i grabbed the name for uh, our denobulan character um was a real live doctor so i thought it was cool to kind of come up with the idea you know to, to toss him in there early in his career because uh, when we sat down and did the math it certainly would have uh, jived with uh, the denobulan uh, you know lifespan yeah i thought that was a really cool addition um i also the idea that he was kind of resistant to the parasites uh, or the, the Lurondi, uh kind of reminded me of, you know, Dr. Flox's ability to resist the assimilation in the Enterprise episode, Regeneration. I, I just thought that was a really good use of his character. And, and uh, I, I, I love Denobulans, so that was really cool to see him there. <laughs> And, and that was, and that was, uh, you know, I mean, based in uh, in previous experience, or at least, you know, I mean, exposure to the character on Enterprise. I mean, there was the episode where he said, "Oh, we just kind of hallucinate for fun." So we had the the, you know, we just imagined that that they are, uh, you know, they absolutely have more um, uh, mental um, agility than the average humanoid and uh and certainly possible that they had more uh capability of uh fending for themselves uh psychically than um you know anything that Rondi had experienced before what were some of the things that you both wanted to be able to do uh with the characters in this book as you are continuing a lot of them from the Vanguard series, and, and so we're getting to continue to watch them grow. What were some of the places that you were excited to be able to continue to take these characters, especially here with all that's left? For me, um, I really, I mean, there's, there's, there's characters that I just really dig seeing in Dayton's hands. I mean, when he, when he sends stuff to me, um, you know, to read and vice versa, there's just, you know, stuff that I look forward to. And I, I love uh, the, uh, the way that, that he handles uh, the, uh, um, you know, Katami. Um, I I just, I just like that. Um, I tried to, uh, to Stano in uh, um, in you know a command for you know form in ways that uh, that I see him uh, write uh, you know uh, command characters. So that that to me is always fun. Is just the idea of seeing the two of them you know be good capable leaders 
um, I just really like both of those characters. Well, I mean, the first two books that we've done uh, are, are very plot driven. Um, so it seems like we don't really get a chance to, we haven't yet had a chance to really do a character based tale. Uh, maybe next time we'll see. But I really enjoy playing with the dynamics between Katami and Leone, the, ch the ship's doctor. Um, I've really taken a liking to the way Leone interacts with uh, his nurse, uh, Holly Amos, you know, who's this young, wide eyed, not maybe not naive, but uh, what's the word I want? Um, oh, actually, well, she's 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 uh, inexperienced. I mean, she's growing in her job. Yeah, but I mean, it's I'm I'm blanking on what I want. I mean, she's she's definitely very upbeat and very positive. Got a great attitude about going out there and doing what Starfleet's supposed to do. And then, of course, you got Leone, mm -hmm. the, the cynic. I mean, the only thing missing from Leone is a cigarette dangling from his belt. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 literally in my head, Steve Buscemi. Uh, that's the, oh, I love that's that the face we stuck in the S. That's the that's the face that Dave Mack stuck in the writer's guy that he created for Vanguard way back when, and that is what I have used as my template since day one. And mm -hmm. change every bit of dialogue that comes out of his mouth. I hear Steve Buscemi saying it. Yeah, uh, me too. So and probably and that, that's probably the the clearest in terms of if I had to assign an actor to one of these roles, that's the one that just is a lock. I mean, I could I can be talked into or out of anybody else that we may have proposed as an actor template for these other characters, but Buscemi is Leone period full stop. Uh, mm -hmm. And I just, and I enjoy the dynamic between him and Katami because even though it's, a, it's, it's similar in some ways to the way Kirk and McCoy react or relate to each other, it's definitely different. He's much more cynical than even McCoy is, which I didn't think was possible, but, <laughs> and he's got, I mean, we've got some ideas on where to take some of these characters and, 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 and to what to reveal about their backstories. If we, if we get a chance to tell a tale, that's really character driven versus the more plot driven original series type storylines that we've had so far so well how do y'all make that determination too i mean because that is something you know that i know even from on our own listeners discussion group the babel conference so many people who have read vanguard they have just loved what was done there with all the characters and the character development that comes throughout those books so as a writer how do y'all make that decision of of when and how to a share about a character's background and and how to space that out maybe between books you know and along with the plot because you know that's a tough balance especially in star trek which tends to be i guess unless you're deep space nine it, it is much more plot driven well i mean i think part of that goes to we were trying you know we wanted seekers to stand apart from vanguard i mean it's a legitimate sequel but it's not just you know vanguard continued continued uh, uh continued nice word there ward i'm a professional uh continued we just, i mean we wanted it to be different in tone we wanted it to be different in, in storytelling approach we didn't want i mean uh, we wanted to have uh, more stories that were more in line with the original series in terms of not not episodic but but more you know definitely more standalone from book to book um, and you know those story, a lot of those stories are largely plot driven. Uh, you get details about the characters as needed, um, and and then uh, but we also want to kind of strike a balance between. I think we want and correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin. But I mean, our original thinking was we wanted Seekers to kind of be a hybrid between the original series and Vanguard, basically that sweet spot between the two different types of storytelling. Uh, Absolutely, I mean, I, I think that's what we had uh, presented to. 
um, to Simon and Schuster and, and uh, CBS together. And, uh, you know, with, with the idea of, uh, you know, kind of summer movie tone, I mean, we're going to, it's, it's going to be uh, something that is, uh, that is fun and, and, and action and interesting, but, uh, certainly with its, with its character moments. And, and I would argue, and this is, this is one of those corny things that writers say. And when I read it, I think, yeah, right. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think a lot of times character development isn't dictated by us putting it on a map. It's, it's us in the moment and the character kind of deciding what to do. I mean, there are times that, uh, that I'm in a, and I'm thinking, well, crap, I don't think she would say this like I wanted her to. I think she'd say that. And so then I type it and go, okay, well, now what you going to do? <laughs> and uh you know so so sometimes that really does happen it does it, i mean we we don't deviate from the uh you know from the you know from a point like say you know if i'm if i'm writing the, you know the first draft of a chapter my job is to get you know pick everybody up at, at this point and drop everybody off at that point you know just you know as we as we dictated in our uh, in our you know outline that we share with each other but you know how that person gets from one point to the other you know, I mean, I'm not necessarily sure I know. Yeah, we don't have detailed character backstories for these folks. I mean, we have what we learned about them in Vanguard, and we have a few other ideas that we necessarily haven't shared yet, but that are kind of like, I'm going to write this about this character at some point, question mark. <laughs> if I can find a way to work that into a story, or, you know, if there's a reason that that might come up, or we can tell a story where this facet of a character is important. Uh, then I might be at a chance to inject that. It's just a, like I, like we said, we think it's a. I guess if you drew a Venn diagram, you'd have TOS on the left and Vanguard on the right, and in the middle, in that over, you know, in that slice in the middle, that's where Seekers is at, somewhere in there. In theory, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> well, one thing I was kind of curious about uh, was the title of the novel, All That's Left. Uh, I was kind of curious as to, you know, where that title came from and, and, you know, kind of what that, what that phrase, all that's left means for you, uh, in the context of this story. Uh, I will ask what he thinks about that. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I didn't name it. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, it's my fault. I came up with the title. Um, I, the idea basically is that it's all that's left. It's all that's left of this civilization. It's all that's left of that civilization. It's all that's left of what these people know. Uh, mm. There's different different meanings, I guess, depending on which side of the equation you're you're, you're coming at it from. Um, I don't actually, I don't even know how the actual title itself came out it was just we were looking for something along those lines and i started typing <laughs> random words together to see what would fit until i finally found something i didn't hate <laughs> well and and but i also think that it reflects what was going on with the the LaRonda. i mean you know i mean when we arrive you know, on the planet and try to figure out all that's left of their civilization we have no idea that this ship is coming from you know i mean you know almost you know i don't want to say back through time because it wasn't that way but it was like a time capsule i mean it was you know i mean that that ship left and and stuff went down and and then they came back and it's like you know we're working with all that's left and 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 that's what and then we realize that uh when you know i say we as as you know the federation side or whatever 
you know, realizes that, uh, you know, I mean, they are trying to figure out how to survive, how to, you know, I mean, what remnants of their civilization, what, uh, what drive they have to continue as a species and a culture. And they're working with all that's left. And and that that's that's kind of the way that 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 that, that, the, that the title lands on me when I think about it. Yeah, all that's left of their civilization, all that's left of you know the, the folks on the planet, and then you know when we're done with everything that happens in the book, <laughs> all that's left. Well, the Federation yeah. has to help them. Has to help them. You know, that's all that's left for us to do. Um, will we come back? Maybe. You know, look around Seekers Book Ten or Twelve, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's this really interesting conversation uh, at the beginning of the book where two Starfleet characters are talking about, and, and they're wondering how a society that's so technologically advanced can kind of destroy themselves the way they have. And it, it was an interesting thing, uh, the question, because, you know, for Star Trek, technology and the development of it has always equaled us getting better. But... When I look at the world today and I see the way that technology has changed our world, some of it's good, some of it's bad, and some of it has just kind of made us stupider. So it's a it's a strange thing that we that struggle that I, I see with like the Star Trek view of the universe and how it really is. Um, and I kind of wondered for for you guys. What when you're writing a Star Trek novel, um, how do you uh, fit all that together? Because you know, it, things are are different than than what we have now. Um, and sometimes statements like that really stand out to me because it's 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 not necessarily true that you know greater technology makes for smarter, or better, or more moral people or any of that. I'm just going to clarify your question. Are you saying that it is that it should be, or that do we find it more difficult to project from the aspirations of Roddenberry 50 years ago from the starting point we're at now in 2015? Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the question because you know um, what Roddenberry said 50 years ago hasn't necessarily proven at least to be true at this point, and you know. Uh, especially in reference specifically to the way technology, you know, influences our lives. Well, absolutely. But if Rod, if Roddenberry thought that we were going to get to his aspirational endpoint in 50 years, then Star Trek would have been set in 2015. Yeah, I don't. True. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any shame in that we have not hit his ideals for where he wanted humanity to be at this point in time, regardless of what assistance we get from technology. And I certainly don't think that, uh, that, you know, him looking at the 23rd century from 1966 is, uh, any less possible, any less desirable, um, than just that we've moved, you know, when you move the needle, just those 50 years. Well, I think it's also important to remember that, and this is from Roddenberry too, is we had a period where, we we screwed up <laughs> uh, you know and there's even a line yeah. in one of the episodes that i'm blanking which one it comes from but basically kirk is describing what happened to, to humans and he's like our weapons grew faster than our wisdom and yeah so yeah. we had a down period before we clawed our way back up now we have since added to that 
vision a little bit or that that original idea with you know we got help from the Vulcans and uh, you know, we 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 basically had to knock the crap out of each other and then we were at our lowest point and then along comes the Vulcans to help us get out of that mm-hmm. and then we 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 don't look back we keep going we from that point forward we start to improve and, and get better and 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 go on. Um, I I think that if we if Roddenberry had the opportunity to step into 2015. And, and check things out. He might have rewritten that line. And I love that line, our weapons grew faster than our wisdom, because in 1966, we were worried about our weapons. I mean, you know, it was still Cold War stuff and things like that. I would argue now that Roddenberry might go with the idea that the speed of information availability has outpaced our ability to process it and figure shit out. Mm-hmm. That, to me, the weapon that I the think is that amazing. is even more more scary than, you know, the nuclear warheads that, uh, that, you know, or, uh, you know, I mean, photon torpedoes or whatever it is that we were working with back then is that, um, that the information superhighway basically has only shown us how fast we can be ignorant. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's also another flavor. It's another side of that coin that the old adage, you know, knowledge is power. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. You can we see it every day. People have literally the information of the world, literally in the palm of their hands. They can research any topic. They can find anything about anything that crosses their mind, and yet they'll post a picture of a cat who can't spell, or they'll post a <laughs> they'll, they'll post a picture that's a politically charged meme that is refutable in six seconds if you look at a Google. Exactly, you know, but yeah. that's that's the, that's what they choose to do. So yeah, I, I, that's a very that's a fabulous uh, viewpoint that, or you know, a fabulous thing that Kevin put forward. Yeah, information that's the weapon. He who controls the information controls the world. Mm. Well, and and uh, thinking through that, you know, the way that we use technology, it it, it doesn't it hasn't necessarily you know, made us a smarter people because instead of remembering things or figuring things out. We just Google it. Now, well, I mean, you know, like, how about this? I when I was a kid, I was a human Rolodex. I could yeah, recall exactly. a phone number at a drop of a hat. My dad used to look at me and go, "What's so and so's phone number?" <laughs> and I could pull it up without. I mean, I could just recite it. Boom, no delay. Now I'm lucky if I can remember my own phone number because it's in my phone. My home phone is in my phone. My I, I can't tell you right now what number might will ring on my wife's desk at work. <laughs> I literally do, <laughs> and nor do I care because it's programmed into four different phones in this house. So when when we used to argue, or my parents, you know, were, were about the about the, where it was this idea of, can you believe the state of education today? They're letting kids have calculators and math class. <laughs> well, back in the day. You had to depend on knowing your timetables quickly because that's what you needed to know. And, you know, and, and to me, um, you know, I thought, well, heck yeah, I need a calculator in math class. And, but, my, but my perspective was, can you believe they're letting our kids rely on spell check when I used to have to know how to spell every <laughs> word out there? You know, and, 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 but now it's like, you know, I'm not going to, you know, have my daughter get a lower grade on a paper because she uh, misspelled the word that spell check would have caught, you know, because I mean, there's just things that, that go on technology wise that, uh, that, that truly improve life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but, uh, but what, 
you know, I mean, there's a difference between information and knowledge. Yeah. And we have a shit ton of information. And I don't know that we have a whole lot of knowledge. Well, just to cast a little positive light on the doom and gloom that we just threw out there. (laughs) (laughs) I am happy to tell you that my nine-year-old daughter and my seven-year-old daughter are quite capable of doing addition, subtraction, multiplication, division in their heads with three-digit numbers uh, using methods that I, quite frankly, had no idea how they do it or did it. (laughs) I had to learn how to do it, you know, the new math. uh, Uh Uh-huh. Rails on. I'm a, I'm daily on a daily basis astounded by the ability they have to do math in their head, and I'm astounded. See, that's cool. And so when people rail about how they're teaching kids math in school, I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. My two kids are going to be rocket scientists. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah. I mean, the, you know, I remember not long ago that uh, there was a uh, um, moaning and wailing, gnashing of teeth. Over the idea that no one is teach or that that the new curriculum is not providing time to teach cursive writing, and my response was, "I hope to hell not. I want them to learn how to type mm-hmm. because that's what they need." Well, yeah, my, and both my kids have Chromebooks. They have you know they have Chromebook laptops that they bring home from school, and they're doing their schoolwork on Chromebooks, and they're they're also working on their writing. They're just they're just doing all the basics. I, I'm we're getting kind of far afield here, but I'm just saying all is not lost, all is not doom and gloom. The the, the people that the kids that are coming up today and learning are learning. They're just learning differently than we learned when we were at that age, and they're learning in a way that builds step by step so that as they get into the higher grades and there's more demand placed on them, they've got the building blocks in place to set the new, the next level of it, you know, with the, what they're going to learn on top of it. And it's got a solid foundation. Yeah. And I, when I say that if, when I was painting with a broad stroke on yeah. information and knowledge, I'm not, I'm not at all indicting the, no. the generation to come. I'm basing that on the crap that I see on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, you know, to, to go back to your point, though, about what Roddenberry might do if he were alive today and he was creating Star Trek today. In fact, I had this very same conversation the other day because, of, you know, of all the kerfluffle about the new television series. Um, it's like, you know, I almost wish that you could restart Star Trek from the beginning, just like Roddenberry did it in 64. But he's looking at it from a 2015 perspective and how we look at technology and how we look at science and how we look at the universe and what we know that we didn't know 50 years ago and start there with the Star Trek vision he had and build it upon the world today versus what we had 50 years ago and then go out. I mean, you can, and then build out from there, the Star Trek tropes and the Star Trek vision that he originally had, but just base it today versus 50 years ago. And yeah, I'd be a hell of a show. I'd be on that show. I'd be on that like white on rice. Well, and that's the wonderful thing about, you know, we are talking all through about this idea of between the difference between knowledge and, and understanding and, and wisdom. And that's what I love about what Spock says to Valeris in Star Trek Six. You know, there's a big difference between knowledge and, 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 and wisdom. And logic is only the beginning of wisdom. You know, it's not the end. And it's how we apply that. And I think that's the wonderful thing about Star Trek is that talks about how to take the knowledge that we have and apply it wisely because of the varied experiences all put together to create the best solution. And that is a great message. Mm -hmm. And that's what comes across, you know, when you read a great Star Trek novel and and, and when you watch a great Star Trek episode. 
Uh, and hopefully the new series, like you said, Dayton, will, will take some of those ideas and, and put them to use and, and be just as inspiring as it was 50 years ago. I would love to see that. I would love to see them do that. I mean, I'm not saying jettison everything we've done before. I'm just saying if you're going to create a Star Trek series for a new generation, then you got to start it from where we are today versus what Star Trek was 50 years ago. I'm not saying you, jet, you, you jettison all the familiar stuff, but grounded in what we know today about how, you know, what we know about the other planets and the universe beyond our solar system and how science has advanced and how medicine mm -hmm. has advanced and how information is so wired into everything that we do. Technology is so interwoven with everything that we do, even the littlest things that we take for granted, you know, where technology was the devil. <laughs> Computers were this <laughs> mysterious giant box that you walked into and may not come back out of. You know, back in the 60s, mm -hmm. when Roddenberry wrote the original pitch for Star Trek. We were two years out from near Armageddon. We were only two years removed from the Bay of Pigs and all that. So, I mean, that the, the idea of nuclear war was an everyday reality in that in that in that era. You know, and today mm -hmm. it's a different world. We still have threats. We still have concerns, but they're completely different. And yet there's so much there that that we're still talking about what we were talking about 50 years ago. I, I look at the things that Star Trek supposed in the 60s that every time we make a development, somewhere somebody runs back and says, we have a tricorder, we have a bio bed, right. we have a universal translator, we have, a, you know, I mean, it's like everything. It's like, oh, all the cool stuff from Star Trek is becoming real. Well, if we do like Dayton suggests, then we've got an opportunity to start from a base that could inspire the next 50 years of innovation because some kid watches this show and thinks, that's awesome. I'm going to make it real. Right. Make it as relevant as an in and inspiring to people today as it was to those kids watching in 66. Absolutely. Yeah. Trick if they could pull it off. Here, here. <laughs> it, it reminds me of uh, Tomorrowland yeah, from this, you know this last yeah. year where the, the little boy's like, well, if I saw somebody flying around with a jetpack, <laughs> I'd find that pretty inspiring and be like, I wonder if I could do that too. You know, like it's about the optimism and, and that that's what I loved about that movie. And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, Star Trek uh, so great is it's talking about what wolf are you going to feed? Are you going to feed the negative one or the positive one? And unfortunately in the, you know, narcissistic cynicism world that we live in of Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff we've talked about, we're feeding the wrong one, yeah. you know, um, but we can change that. And that's what Star Trek is all about is changing that conversation. And I think that's what makes a, you know, a, a book like this or any of the great Star Trek books we've had with um, they're at their best when they're reflecting what made Star Trek great to us and has mm -hmm. made it last for 50 years and, and, and could last for another 50. I like it. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on board. We've solved the world's problems. <laughs> so, um, you know, coming back to the book. Oh, uh, the book, yeah. The book. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I kind of wanted to ask you guys about is, uh, you know, Rob Caswell does these amazing covers uh, for the Seeker series. And, you know, I, we know kind of like how they were the original inspiration for starting the series. 
Um, and this book in particular, I think, just has the best example of one of these covers. Yes. It's, it's a mighty fine cover, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I was kind of wondering, because, you know, it shows kind of a very specific part of the book, uh, you know, how much collaboration is there with the authors and the artist on the covers? Do you kind of get to review his work as it progresses and offer notes? Or uh, how does that work? Well, he has always been very generous with letting us see stuff early. I'll be honest with you, as far as and, and Dayton, absolutely correct me. The only note that I remember passing to Rob on that cover was to take one of the figures standing on the hull of the alien ship and 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 give it a you know I mean a more recognizable female body type because we knew that uh, Stano was going to be one of the people on the hull in that scene. It's the only thing I remember telling him. Well, we well I mean. The, the, the cover creation for the series is very collaborative, uh, probably more so than most of the other uh, series or the other Star Trek books. I mean, I, we, we usually get a little bit of input depending on which book we're talking about. We used to get a lot of input to Doug Drexler for the Vanguard books. He would even come. Well, that's and, true. What would you want on this? And, you know, uh, but with Rob, uh, it's been very collaborative. He'll, he'll come to us and, you know, we'll send him our outlines and then we'll say, Hey, I've got this idea about, you know, a general idea of what I want to see on the cover, what we'd like to see on the cover. Um, like for example, for the first two books, it was a very bad, it was very much back and forth because we were trying to figure out, okay, this is a, a one, two punch that introduces the series. Uh, we have to refamiliarize people with the ships and the crews. Um, so that's why the first two covers are laid out the way they are. They're, you know, that with those. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and we, and we got to weigh in on the colors. I mean, yeah. I remember, I remember he gave us a number of different ideas for colors and we yeah, weighed we in on that four or five different palettes for each cover and we decided which one looked best for which ship type. And I mean, I call them glamour shots because the way they're shooting toward the <laughs> camera. Uh, I mean, even so much, even, even going as far as the way they're angled so that they kind of angle in toward each other. It was sort of like a, you know, like a, like a, a yearbook photo or something. Um, for, for book three, we didn't, we didn't have any input to the cover cause that was all Dave. Um, but we still we got to participate in the process because we got to see the roughs as it came together. You know? And I think we may have suggested a color palette or something. But for book four in particular, yeah, we went back and forth several times, uh, at least Rob and I did, on uh, want to see a different angle to the ship that we don't typically get. We don't necessarily have the requirement to show off the serial numbers because now people should know that this is not the Enterprise. Um, but the idea of putting people on the cover, I think, was something we had from the jump. We wanted something. That's true. We wanted something that looked like, and if you're familiar with the Blish books, uh, mm -hmm. like, for example, book six, book five, book eight, uh, those all have, when I, and I'm sorry for the folks who are not up to speed, all the James Blish books from the 1970s, the Star Trek adaptations, there's 12 volumes. Um, volumes five, six, and eight in particular show scenes of the Enterprise in space with a landing party on the surface. Uh, and they're all crazy art from the seventies where they're all, they don't look at anything like what the show had or anything like that, but they were cool. Mm -hmm. So that was our jumping point for what we wanted on book four. Um, and then Rob went to work. Uh, he brought us, I don't know, a couple of, a couple, three different ideas. We homed in on the one right away and then it became, you know, like, okay, we want the ship to be colored this way. 
and how many people on the hall and should we have a couple people beaming in and, and then Kevin reminded us oh yeah there might you know Stano's going to be on the landing party so at least one of those figures should be female you know that kind of thing it was it was a lot of fun it's 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 part of the development for the story because once he started pulling that together I'm like okay we now we have to make sure that there's a scene that reflects that coolness <laughs> in the book. So. And that's, yeah, no, I absolutely remember that part of the conversation. That was something that uh, um, the Bush books didn't do. I mean, there's really cool covers, but, uh, you know, they didn't grab anything from the actual stories. And uh, was it Rob? Who was it that did the, uh, the, the, the Blish recovers? That was Rob. Where... Yeah, that uh, if if you go out on on Deviant Art, you can see some of the things that that Rob has created, and there's some some fantastic work there. Um, but uh, among his creations are reimagined covers for the twelve Bush books, and each of the covers actually is an artistic interpretation of a scene from a story in the book, which is something that uh, we didn't have originally. Yeah, his his Deviant Art page is really, really cool. If if nobody has checked that out before, I highly encourage you to go check out Rob Caswell's uh, Deviant Art site because it really is a trip down nostalgia lane with as great as these covers look. And and honestly, all you're gonna do is covet each and every one of them yeah, I want to have them on your wall. I want prints of everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. I'm like, I need a bigger house so I can put more crap on the wall. <laughs> there you go. Wanted to ask both of you, you know, the future of Seekers, you know, with David working on his original works right now, uh, we're kind of wondering, you know, what the future of Seekers is going to look like and if you've got some active pitches into pocketbooks. Um, so what's going to happen right now with Seekers at this moment uh, as we look towards the future now that Dave's a little bit out of commission at the moment for Star Trek? Um, well, I mean, you know, first of all, 2016 schedule is locked. Um, uh, there will be not, there won't be any Seekers books in 2016, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's the 50th anniversary, and a lot of attention is going to be paid to, you know, the original series in particular, but also the, the, the actual uh other television series so there'll be next generation books there'll be some ds9 uh voyager that in other words the, the attention will be paid to the to the canon uh productions and writing out new new tales featuring those characters um 2017 is starting to take shape uh i know a couple of uh projects that are already slotted so far they haven't asked us for a seekers book um we're kind of waiting to see what happens as far as if they're going to let us do one, because we really want Dave to do the next book, book five, you know, because we want to keep to the alternating pattern. Um, there's been some discussion about swipping, swapping order if necessary. Like we would do an odd numbered book while he's away doing his fantasy uh, stuff for tour. Uh, I'm not really keen on that because all three of us are probably pretty anal enough that we don't want to break the pattern. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, and there's, there was even talk, I think somebody had a drunken moment where they suggested well, we could let another writer do a Sagittarius book while Dave's out. And we all went, what are you, what are you kidding? No. <laughs> yeah, um, isn't that cute? That's a cute <laughs> idea. Go away. Um, yeah, we're pretty protective about Seekers, even like we just as much as we were Vanguard. Um, so it's like our corner of the sandbox, go away, go find your own toys. Um, well, I, you know, I'm certainly patient. Um, yeah. and, and I, I hope that the readers are too. I mean, I've got plenty to keep me busy, <laughs> but um, I would like to, st I would 
I would hope that maybe, you know, we'll get a, get one in 2017. Um, uh, but it's too far out to know. Uh, and, and I haven't talked to Margaret about the possible your seekers tales. Um, it's not uh, the, the, the reality that we cannot weigh out is that, uh, I'm confident that, uh, pocketbooks is going to look at sales for the series and decide on their end if they're interested. Right. I mean, so far there hasn't been any sort of like, well, these suck. Don't come back with that. Um, I don't know how they're doing compared to Vanguard and I don't know how they're doing compared to other books in the line that are based on like one of the shows. Uh, my understanding is, you know, still original series and next gen still sell. <laughs> I think we had that topic, that conversation before in one of these podcasts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. As long as Patrick Stewart, that beautiful man is on a cover. Of- <laughs> exactly. Well, um, he is a beautiful, I would like, beautiful I man. I would like to see another Seekers book. I'd love to do another one. Uh, I just I don't know it's too far out like I said and I know for sure 2016 is locked and maybe even the first three or four months of 2017 are locked well what are you guys uh, with the the future of seekers in kind of a purgatory at the moment what do you both have coming up uh, next Uh, both you Dayton and Kevin the works that you're working on together and separately Uh, and then of course before you go make sure that everybody knows where to find both of you uh, online so they can, you know, follow what's coming up next for each of you. We'll start with Kevin. Oh, we'll start with me. Um, well, collaboratively, um, the uh, next thing we have um, is uh, a book that will come out in September of 2016 um, that is uh, part of a trilogy to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the original series. Um, and, and that's... Uh, you know, and that that is a uh, uh, called Purgatory's Key, and it is the it will finish up a story that is started by Greg Cox, and then the second volume is by Dave Mack. So that collaborative, I don't think there's anything we're working on collaboratively that comes out before that, is there? I don't believe so. <laughs> Unless I can, well, I there's sleep, a possibility. <laughs> well, no, no. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, well, I mean, uh, maybe this is something we take off the air. Um, there's a possible. We have we have a possible uh, um, uh, and a likely collaboration in an anthology that has not been announced that could potentially end up being published before uh, the uh, purgatory before purgatory key is published in uh, for September of 2016. I just don't know the timeline of that, and uh, that project hasn't been announced, so I don't want to speak to it. Um, there's uh, I mean, a book that was just published um, by Sequart called A Long Time Ago, which is a series of essays um, about the Star Wars cinematic universe. Uh, Dayton and I are represented in that book with uh, individual essays. Um, mine is about the uh, Ewok movies. <laughs> because I told them that if I was going to take part in this, I wanted to write about something that had real artistic merit, and uh, um, and that's what they gave me. The uh... whoa, 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 Dilmore! You didn't choose the Christmas special, the holiday Somebody special. Somebody beat, Somebody beat me. Oh, to that's it. too bad. <laughs> I will, but but I will I will admit um, that I didn't necessarily want to take on the holiday special. Well, the, when they when this same editorial team came to us with ideas about uh, doing essays on Star Trek sequential art, I jumped at Happy Meal Boxes. <laughs> and I was only nice. half kidding. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's funny because the editors who I hadn't worked with before asked a very legitimate question. You know, 
does does Bill Moore have the chops to speak articulately and authoritatively on Happy Meal boxes for 5,000 words? And bless him, Keith DeCandido jumped into the conversation and said, if anybody can do it, that dumbass can. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's incredible. I love it. (laughs) So with Keith... And that's a true story. With Keith vouching for me, they gave me the, they gave me the assignment. And uh, I went ahead and wrote about uh, Happy Meal boxes and Kenner Give a Show projectors and, um, coloring, books. and coloring, books. coloring books. Yeah, I borrowed all of Dayton's coloring books so I could get the stories out of those. Um, you know, I didn't do Viewmasters because Viewmaster didn't do any original stories. They just, you know, chronicled episodes that existed. But, uh, um, but, you know, but that, so anyway, that, I mean, and that, exi- that essay is in uh, uh, a book uh, that's called uh, um, uh, New Life and New Civilizations. And, uh, and that's available from Seacord as well. But uh, let's see, on the Hallmark front, um, I've got uh, a book that, I'll be honest with you, I can't even remember when this is coming out because I've had the date change. But it's a, uh, it's a uh, Batman book called Riddle Me This. That is, uh, a, is a puzzle book for all ages uh, that is uh, kind of written from the idea of uh, the Riddler has uh, uh, spent some time in Arkham Asylum filling a moleskin booklet with, uh, with puzzles for Batman that he leaves behind when he escapes. And then you have to match with, with Batman to figure out all the puzzles and where the Riddler is going to strike next so you can capture him and put him back. Um, and that was a lot of fun to do. And I've got some other projects from Hallmark that don't have end dates uh, that haven't been announced, but they're uh, um, they're books for uh, for young readers, and that's 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 all I can think of for me. What about you, Dayton? I've been staying pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, uh, no kidding. In addition to writing with Kevin for the for the Legacies trilogy, which he already talked about, uh, which will out have out next September. Uh, between now and then, uh, let's see, I have, uh, well, for Star Trek, uh, I've got a novel coming out in April that is called Elusive Salvation, and it's a TOS novel. It's a sequel to a novel I wrote a couple years ago called From History Shadow, uh, which was fairly well received. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so I got a chance to do a sequel for that. So there'll be more time travel and more UFOs and more conspiracy shenanigans for Roberta Lincoln and Captain Kirk. Definitely excited. I want to believe Yes, believe it. Um, an off-the-wall project that kind of uh, came my way that's Star Trek related that's coming from a different publisher uh, uh, called Inside – or the, the name of the publisher is Inside Editions. Uh, they're the same people who did that beautiful Star Trek costumes book that uh, Paula Block and Terry Erdman put together. Uh, I'm doing a travel guide to the planet Vulcan. <laughs> uh, it's, it's basically like a lonely universe or a Frommer's travel book that you'd buy at the store and then take with you on vacation. Uh, so except, you know, it's about a place that doesn't exist. So I got to have a lot of fun creating all the entries and, uh, sidebar articles and whatnot for that. And they're going to juice it all up with artwork and photography from the shows and the films and all that kind of stuff to really, really make it sing. And that's also coming out. That's actually coming out in July. Um, what else have I got going on here? Um, oh, well, as far as non Star Trek, can you talk about the novella? Yeah, I'm working on, I'm working my way around to it. I'm trying to remember. Um, I've got a short story coming out in an anthology next spring called uh, it's the anthology is called 2113 mu- uh, stories inspired by the music of Rush the band 
Uh, so all of the stories in the anthology are inspired by one of the songs from Rush's rather extensive back catalog. Uh, so that'll be, and that's uh, that's how it's being edited by Kevin J. Anderson, who's uh, in addition to being a very prolific author, is also I think might be number one on the Rush Stalker list. <laughs> Can you say what song inspired your story? Yeah, the song that I wrote, uh, the the song that inspired my story is called Red Sector A, and it's basically the science fiction analogy to the concentration camps. Um, which is what the song is about. Now, my my story is not a retelling of that song. That's just my my springboard idea, and I write a story with that idea, that theme. Um, so, and Dave Mack also has a story in that anthology. But God help me, I cannot remember what song he went with because he changed his mind a couple times. <laughs> I lost track of it. Well, you know, I, I'm the only one that I I thought he was trying for Red Barchetta, but I don't know if he actually no, did. No, that's it. actually, they've got the story, the original story that was written that inspired the song. They are including yes. the anthology. So it's it's a pretty crazy anthology. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, I'm also doing a book for Tor uh, based on the television series 24. Uh, I'm doing a, uh, a novel that's, that has Jack Bauer doing Jack Bauer stuff. Uh, that will come out next fall. In fact, I think it comes out like a week ahead of the Star Trek novel, the Purgatory's Key. It's like one Tuesday is the Jack Bauer book, and then the next Tuesday is our book, the Star Trek book. Dayton Ward Week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 2016's months, almost like then, the uh, year of Ward uh, here. <laughs> the thing that fell in my lap uh, a month or so ago, actually it's been a couple months ago now, I'm doing an, I did a novella for uh, Mars Attacks, you know, the trading card series. Uh, that came out originally in the 60s, and then they rebooted it a few years ago, right around the time of the original's 50th anniversary. I'm doing a novella. Uh, I did it. I mean, I've already written it. I'm actually looking at the copy edits right now. Um, it was. It's going to be sent out to all the people who backed the Kickstarter that Topps put together to create a board game and a new series of trading cards. Uh, so oh, it'll wow. be sent out first to them as a backer reward exclusive, and then it'll become available for general sale like next spring. So uh, I'm staying pretty busy. Uh, Pocketbooks, yeah. Pocketbooks has me signed up to do two more Star Trek novels uh, after we get done with the Purgatory Ski. So I'm staying busy. You uh, talked about your essay in a long time ago because I didn't touch on what you wrote about. Oh. I thought it was really cool. I'm sorry. Yeah, forgot about that stuff too. Um, in addition to the, the Kevin's st uh, story or his essay, my essay is going to be called uh, – Surrounding us and binding us together, Star Star Wars fandom across generations. Basically, it's a comparison of the way Star Wars fans were in 1970s when I was a kid and the first movie came out versus what we have today, and the expectations and the, and the excitement and the enthusiasm and how, at least in my particular case, I'm sharing that with my daughters who are also Star Wars fans. My oldest daughter is exactly the same age that I was when the original star Wars came out in the summer of 77, she's going to be the same age nine when we go see force awakens next month. So I've been looking forward to sharing that with her on the big screen, the way the star Wars movies deserves to be seen for about a year and a half now. So uh, I'm excited about that. And then I'm also doing a planet of the apes. Uh, I'm doing a couple of planet of the apes essays for Seacourt. Um, one of them was uh, an examination of the live action television series. Um, uh, that I did for a, a book that will be out next year. And then I'm doing a short story for a collection of fiction that Titan Books is producing about Planet of the Apes, the classic continuity of the five films and the two television series from the 70s. Uh, all the stories will be using characters and situations inspired from those. So 
okay, that's it. I'm done for real. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say what's so cool about this, and I don't know if you remember Dayton, but back on November 17th of 2012 was the first episode of Literary Treks. That's when it dropped. Wow, really? And wow. you were the first guest. Was the first guest. As, yeah, as we talk about in Tempest Wake. And yet that's three years ago. And so it's really cool to have come full circle and have you back on again and you know, for that, that week. And I, I just really wanted to say it, it's been a, a, such a privilege to get to know all of you writers it's it's so much fun to have you guys on the show and you know i the things that we get to talk about because you guys write great star trek books and the conversations that ensue because of that like we had tonight um that's what makes star trek great and uh, you guys keep that spirit alive and you've been keeping it alive and now well hopefully we're crossing our fingers we'll have a great new series to to write even more great star trek books with so uh it you know I was just thinking about that uh, today as I look at the calendar I was like oh wait this it's one day after our third anniversary and Dayton was right there at the very beginning I can't believe it's been three years I never did get that <laughs> gift basket by the way <laughs> uh, it got lost no, in the I, mail I, I, you I, know Chris is in Tokyo uh, so <laughs> customs I uh, blame customs I, I mean I, I speaking for myself I I appreciate that you all have that you want to have us on, you want to talk about what we do. And uh, I know you have a lot of folks who listen to the show and they appreciate what you all do and they get a kick out of what you all do. I, I certainly like a chance to talk about it because otherwise I'm just talking to myself and it's not nearly, <laughs> That's as not true. You're talking to me. <laughs> it's not nearly as fun when it's by, it's, it's like everything else. It's more fun when there are other people involved. So, so and, and, and I, I'm always flattered to be, you know, brought in and uh, you know i still feel like that uh you know being listed in the company of the people who write you know star trek and and other media tie-in i i i still feel like you know i'm you know the you know i'm, I'm the kid that they invited along because they needed somebody to watch uh you know left field um but <laughs> and and when right you know field. that everyone's going to hit shallow yeah right field. right field. um if you're going to sports yeah, analogy, you got to get it right, man. God. I don't know. I don't know sports. As, I can't do the sports. As, but, I don't know. Uh, but, but, but truly, I mean, the, uh, I mean, you guys giving us a forum, these are the kinds of conversations that I am, you know, very thankful and happy to have, you know, when, when Dayton and I get together on a pretty regular basis, you know, we're sitting around talking about crap like this all the time. And uh, it's, it's nice to be able to to share that with other people who you know appreciate this stuff as much as we do i mean this is not this this doesn't feel like disposable writing to us it doesn't feel like uh you know stories that are just you know fun to have i mean we you know i mean we know many people who put a lot of thought a lot of talent into producing you know tie-in fiction and uh we're we're happy for the chance and we're we're always flattered to talk about it well, we're always happy to have you guys on for sure. And uh, yeah, no, I, I think I speak for a lot of Star Trek readers out there when, when we say, you know, what, what you guys do is really, really important and really appreciated by a lot of people. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for supporting us. 
Well, Matthew, that was a that was a pretty great conversation with Dayton and Kevin there. Uh, you know, it's always a treat to be able to talk to the authors. And, you know, I really felt like we kind of got two for the price of one this week. So that was pretty excellent. <laughs> I I just love having those guys on. They're, they're so much fun. And, you know, the best part about doing an interview is is not just uh, hearing behind the scenes, but, you know, getting to know them and, and just laughing. Like, we just laughed so much throughout the interview, and, and that's great. You know, Star Trek is not just series. It is fun, and that's one of the best parts about the Seekers line. And so I am I, I just love when we get a chance to talk about uh, these books with the authors and, and just hear what they have to say uh, about what they wrote and the things that inspired them. And I, honestly, geez, the great conversations that we got into because of it was just hands down brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of a time I've laughed more listening to, you know, these, these two great writers talk back and forth. It, it's clear why they write together so well. They've got such a good rapport and uh, man, some of the stuff that they come up with is just hilarious. So a lot of fun today here. And we want to be sure to thank Ken Tripp and uh, Brandon Shea Matula and Bruce Gibson and Will Wynn for their support as associate producers through Patreon of the show and making sure that it keeps coming to you, the listener, every single week. Uh, we are a listener-supported network, and, and that means that uh, we don't have to have uh, ads or all those other things. It's through listeners going to patreon.com slash trekfm and supporting us monthly that we're able to bring quality shows to you, great interviews like this, and we love it. But because of the cost of doing this, we need your help to be part of the team. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm, see how you can help us. We've got some great perks for you. We've got patron.zone. That's patron.zone that Chris Jones has just set up for everybody. It's so much fun. There's early access to the shows. We've got exclusive content there, like wallpapers and ringtones and all sorts of really fun behind-the-scenes stuff. So make sure you check that out. That's You can get all of that for just $5 a month. And if you're $25 or more, you get to be on the Patreon Wildtables, which we're doing twice a month now which is fantastic and you know gives more people an opportunity to be involved so check all that out at patreon.com slash trek fm and of course while you're uh looking for our shows and itunes at itunes.com slash trek fm make sure you hit up literary treks and give us a star rating and review and really help us out there uh make sure that more and more people continue to find the show because of all the great ratings we have really want to say thank you to everyone who's gone and done that already and so uh yeah we could really appreciate having some new ones and we love mentioning those on the show now dan when you're not trying to swat that weird octopus thing on the back of your neck and get it off uh where can we find you oh man uh you know i can't decide if if what i'm doing to help these guys is really my idea or yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, yeah, no, you can find me online. Uh, I'm, my website is www.treklet.com, and there I uh, review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, 
And you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash treklitreviews. And of course, you can find me kicking around the Babel Conference, uh, participating in Star Trek discussions there. So uh, yeah, join up there and and go ahead and talk to us. And Matthew, when you're not uh, trying to get in on the whole Green Lantern thing and see what color ring you can take over, uh, where can we find you? Man, I would love to have a sweet green lantern ring or a blue lantern. I just, yeah, anything but yellow. So, uh, well, you could find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on Instagram at MRushing, where Trek FM is now on Instagram. So make sure to check us out and follow us there, too. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time. Have so much fun doing that. I'm also on the 602 Club, where I'm the host, and we talk about all things geeky, all over the place, new, old, edged. It's it's a blast. So make sure you check that out. And you can also find me at my own personal blog, 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.